welcome to one of 200, the independent political and media podcast interviewing live from New Zealand today. I'm joined by Felicity Powell. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really a pleasure. We've talked uh, previously just, just on social media about uh, kind of education adjacent things and I've wanted you uh, on the podcast for a while just to talk around some of this. Uh, and we're just coming up to a period in New Zealand's pandemic response where we've got uh, vaccines available for school-aged children, uh, 12 and younger. They have gone back to school this week or schools are starting to open up again this week. And a lot of parents um, and people who have uh, younger children in their lives are concerned or, or thinking about the challenges incoming if uh, we get another Delta outbreak, or more, um, I guess, worryingly, if Omicron uh, kind of gets out into the community. And in the last couple of years, um, I think we've generally responded well as a country. Um, there has been some school closure where it's needed. Um, when there are cases in a school community, um, those have been wrapped up quite quickly. But alongside that, there have been these concerns about the education of the children who are no longer able to attend school um, in person uh, and some of the digital equity issues that arise out of doing remote schooling as well. So that's what we wanted to talk about. Um, it's, it's a really broad topic and, and I'm very aware of that. So we'll see where it takes us. But why don't we just start, Felicity, if you could kind of talk about where, where you come from in this conversation um, and what your experience is in this space. Sure, yeah. So I've kind of had, I feel like I've had a bit of a very non-traditional entry into my career in education. I, I grew up swearing that I would never work in education. Uh, my my mom was a teacher. She had her first job was a teacher. She was in teacher's college when she was 16 and she was in a classroom at 19. Um, and kind of from the horror stories that she, <laughs> she told me, uh, I grew up thinking that I never really wanted to be a teacher or I never really wanted to work in education. And yet I somehow always found myself coming back to it in some way, shape or form. Um, after running an education, um, an education publishing company for four years, in, um, I was kind of recommended by a colleague to look into the Aquamath LGBT Teach First program. Um, and that uh, I initially, I was actually given, um, I was invited to join the C18 cohort, so starting teaching in 2018. Uh, but at the time I was working on a government contract, a uh, contract with Otakoro Limited, which is the Crown-led uh, development company in Christchurch following the earthquakes. Um, I was working with them and Mathapopuri, the cultural advisory board, to create this really large piece of public artwork uh, in Cathedral Square around what is now the site for Tapai Convention Centre. And so I had to defer my enrollment in the Teach First program or my um, matriculation or joining the Teach First program because obviously that overlapped. And I was in London doing some work and uh, I was invited to join the cohort again. And so I did for C19. And uh, so sort of the, it was really interesting timing because <laughs> I had my first full year of teaching, just, you know, no breath of the, uh, of, you know, of the pandemic head. Uh, you know how sweetly innocent we were but the um I I started the cohort so I'd actually just finished a postgraduate certificate of intellectual property law 
And that was something that arose out of um, running this publishing company and working with. I kept I I was getting increasing contracts that managed or or dealt with indigenous intellectual property. So with um, when I was working with Matapupuri, you know, we were dealing with some amazing um, stories and histories from Naitahu and Naituahuriri, and I was really um, I thought it was quite a contentious space for me as a Pākehā woman running a publishing company and dealing with, you know, and and kind of handling and trying to give appropriate respect and care to um, Māori intellectual property. And so I went and studied intellectual property law at postgraduate level at Auckland University, uh, at Auckland Law School. I was really fortunate I was given discretionary entry. Um, And that was kind of the split off point. I was deciding whether I wanted to continue with my publishing company or whether I wanted to join the Teach First program. And I decided to join Teach First and it was honestly the best decision I've ever made in my life. So I went into the Teach First program and because my last qualification was in law, I was put down to be an English teacher. <laughs> so, um, which I have a very mixed undergraduate degree. I, I sort of, I studied, ended up finishing my degree in geography with disaster risk management and ge- geographic information systems. Um, I studied computer science. I, I studied creative technologies at AUT and all, a manner of different things. Uh, but I was put into the program as an English teacher because I had more experience in, in humanities and in, um, in languages. So, uh, and the first half of the summer intensive, I was put down as being an English teacher. So I learned about the English language and literature curriculum uh, and all of the practice so the kind of you do the summer intensive and you do some practicum teaching and that and all of that was around the English subject area and by the middle of the summer intensive (laughs) I didn't have a job which was really interesting because it was I was the last person to be placed because uh, obviously, with with to teach first with the program, you have to teach at low decile schools, so it has to be a decile five or below, and uh, you're placed with schools that have a partnership with with Akumatatibu. And at that point, they just expanded to the whole country. You know, the Ministry of Education was responding to an extreme teacher shortage at the time, and our cohort was actually expanded by double its size because of that. But I was I had the flexibility because you know there's people in the Akumatatibu program who have families who can't afford to move, or you know they don't really want to move from the place that they're at and I was kind of like I've been pretty peripatetic anyway so I was just like you know I'm happy to um be wherever just place me wherever um but because I was the last person to be placed I I was actually not um I had one job offer and actually was the one job offer that I didn't want to take um I just had a very uh yeah it it, and it sounds really bad It, it and it was just I had a gut feel about the school that offered me the job and uh, that ended up being a really good call because, and I and I said, and I felt really bad because it was sort of like, you know, if you don't have a placement, you 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 have to leave the program. And I'd already gone through, you know, the first half of the summer intensive, and um, I remember I just had a bad gut feeling, and I was there, and I was just like, you know, I wouldn't normally make this call, but I I just can't go with this. Uh, and interestingly enough, that year that that school went into administration with Eero, so um, that was a bullet dodged <laughs> but um so yeah and so we were halfway through the program and it was looking like I was going to have to leave and um they asked me you know are there any other subjects that you would be willing to teach and I had more of an undergraduate qualification in computer science and so I um, was like you know I could de- I might be able to teach digital technologies and uh and I was given 48 hours I I had a job within a week uh and 48 hours notice essentially to learn the digital technologies curriculum <laughs> And when I when I entered the program, I had no idea about digital equity, digital inequity. I didn't understand about, you know, how dire things are in New Zealand. In fact, I was actually coming from the opposite. I grew up with two technologists for parents. Both of my parents worked in tech industries. And 
Uh, I was hacking things from, you know, for, from a very young age. I learned to code text-based programming. You know, I always had access to that. Um, and, you know, we have increasing awareness, I feel, as adults about how technology influences our behavior, how it's not necessarily a positive thing in our lives. And we have um, an increasing body of research coming out about young people's development and how that can be potentially harmed by technology and how it's used and, and the indiscriminate use of it in society. And so I went into the Teach First program being like, like, you know, I want to be low tech. <laughs> I want to have mm -hmm. a low tech classroom. Uh, I want to have no devices. I really want to, to get, you know, um, support young people to think critically about how we use technology and how technology uses us. Um, and then it was so interesting to do this complete 180 um, because I learned about, you know, the reality of what it is like in our schools and digital equity and digital inequity. Uh, and the fact that really at the crux of things, a lot of our wider inequities in education come down to digital inequity. So um, that was quite a shock to the system. <laughs> so I, I went in and suddenly I just, you know, from learning about this, I just became obsessed with curriculum development and curriculum design for equity around, particularly around the digital technologies curriculum. Uh, and I also became obsessed with this idea that, you know, I learned in my first year of teaching, uh, there's a statistics out, and I can never remember, it was, it was brought up by an Australian think tank um, that they basically calculated that New Zealand teachers is the fourth most overworked in the world. The first is Japan, uh, Japanese teachers, uh, but New Zealand teachers are the fourth most overworked. So that's uh, calculated based on non-contact hours to contact hours and how much work has to go into that. And that's pretty scary. Uh, and when you start teaching, you realize where that comes from. You know, there's just so much extra work. And I felt that like a lot of it was very inefficient work. And I felt that, you know, we're not really using the digital tools that we have access to, um, to their best effect to actually make our lives easier. And so um, being sort of coming from the background that I had, I, I was obsessed with building programs that could automate as much of my job <laughs> that could be automated so that I could actually spend time being the best teacher that I could be. Because, you know, when you do the Teach First program, you are studying a full-time master's degree. You're also essentially full-time teaching you're learning how to be a teacher at the same time and it's it's really intense and you know and you you've had this summer intensive which is really helpful for understanding the environments you're going into but yeah so I um and that kind of led one thing into another and I within six months of um being in the classroom I was selected to become a Google innovator which is um I think the current I, I think I was one of the fir first first year teachers to be selected for the program um, and it's really, and I mean, a lot of it is luck. Like I know that a lot of people apply many times to be in the program. Um, but I was very, really, very fortunate because it was just, it enabled me to have access to this huge network of people who were working innovative, like they were working with Google's products, you know, and there's other equivalents of it. You know, there's the Microsoft innovative, innovative education program, um, educator program as well. You know, there's a lots of, lots of these and they're all equally important because it's basically, you know, it's big tech looking at the resources that they're putting into education and how they can support teachers to do the best that they can do. And um, and so that, you know, further that, you know, I was I was working on um, digital equity from so many different angles and I was receiving all of the support from people to learn about what we can do and what the solutions are. And and so that kind of obsession carried me right through well, right away through my first year of teaching. Um, I, you know, it was it was quite an interesting thing doing the full time Google Innovator program and then also being a first year teacher and <laughs> a master's degree at the same time. 
um and i and i did also the pedagogy project which <laughs> i guess we're gonna have to leave the ducks out of it for yeah. this one. <laughs> I'll, I'll hey, talk about people can go and find out about they the can ducks. find out about the ducks yeah, yeah. we'll um, <laughs> um we'll get your social media um links yeah. afterwards and if you want to hear about the ducks um you can go ahead felicity <laughs> up um, yeah. on twitter or somewhere <laughs> totally um yeah no, i'm always happy to talk about the ducks um but the yeah the um yeah, so that was my first year of teaching and that was in the end of 2019. So I had spent an entire year learning about curriculum design for equity and digital equity and uh, being a computer science teacher and a digital technologies teacher in low decile environments. I was really fortunate that I was asked to be um, to present at a few different um, sort of like key, I was a keynote speaker at a few different um, occasions. And and I just spent that time just completely immersing myself. And then we started 2020 <laughs> and, you know, everyone knows what's coming up next. <laughs> but the Australian they, wildfires. Yeah, oh, well, exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that, that first. And, um, and, you know, going through and the summer between, so you have the two-year program and the summer between, obviously, there's quite a lot of work that you have to do as well for your study. So I was, I was preparing for my research project, which is so the master's degree that they were doing at the time um, was sort of like a combined research taught master's and it was also vocational qualifications. That's my teaching qualification right there. Um, and so that summer I spent, you know, planning a research project and I already knew what I wanted to do. I was, I was working on um, cognitive and emotional engagement through using the ducks. <laughs> um, so again, rubber ducks, using rubber, rubber ducks to hack teenagers' brains. Please do look it up. But the... Um, uh, and yeah, and that was over the summer. And at the same time, you know, we had these whisperings about COVID-19 and, and but, well, it was, it was coronavirus, novel coronavirus. It wasn't called COVID-19 at the time. And because of the Google Innovator Program, I was really fortunate that I had this access to this network. And I knew about what was happening in classrooms all over the world because, you know, you have 2,000, so there's 2,000 Google Innovators in the world. And they, um, and we're all very much in contact with each other. And it's frequent, um, you know, there's many different platforms that we use to keep in, in touch, like social media. So in the public forum, and, and we're often sharing uh, ideas and things like that through that. But also, you know, we've got quite a tight knit cohort through Google groups and through email chains and things. And so I was kind of watching what was happening for my colleagues from the C19. So I'm, I'm part of the C19, so the letter C19 for Akumatatsuva, but I'm also part of the cohort C19, S-E-A, so Southeast Asia 19 for um, the Google Innovator program, which is not confusing at all, but the, uh, so my C19 cohorts, my Southeast Asia 19 cohorts from the Google Innovator uh, Academy, you know, I was kind of watching what was happening for them. And, you know, they're based in, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, they're based in America and like North America. And watching them go into lockdown and watching what was happening to the pedagogy. And so this was before we went back to school. Um, here in New Zealand and and so we actually started the term term one 2020 and I was like you know we have to start preparing for this we have you know and I was trying to you know I, I think a lot of my colleagues knew me at that time as being this kind of like loud mouth annoying beginner teacher you know beginner teachers have very special energy and I think <laughs> the are, uh, you know we're an interesting we're an interesting breed but the um you know they were kind of used to me kicking up a fuss like I'd, I'd spent a lot of the, my first year campaigning for renewing the computers in our computer lab in the b block and um and it was interesting because I actually spent all of 2019 campaigning hard against having a, a full BYOD program at the school that I was placed at because it's bring um, your own device right yes yep so the bring your own device program so they were looking to to bring in a bring your own device program and and my number one argument against that was the fact that um 
we already know and we know we know now of course in hindsight that BYOD has its own issues and um, you know how on earth is it fair to ask a family that can't feed you know that they don't have enough food to feed themselves to buy a laptop for their child and and I know that there are funding routes and there's ways that board of trustees can support as well um, but you know you can understand that it's a very contentious thing and and when you have a computer lab and when you have a well um, like a well kitted out computer lab that serviced really well basically the, the thing that I could always call back on is just like you know I know that all my kids need to do is turn up and they can learn they don't have to bring anything. They don't need, even need to bring a bag. They don't need to bring a pen. I provide everything. And that was a really important thing to me that they never had to worry about not having the right equipment to learn because, you know, it can it can create so many issues as soon as you start co- to compound that. So uh, I actually spent a lot of 2019 like railing against the idea of creating a BYOD program at my school. And I was just like, no, we need to put that, that money into renewing our computer lab because our, our computers, the warranty at the time, I think it, it expired in 2011 took a good like an average 20 minutes for most of the computers to start up um which was just terrifying this is, this is a new zealand wide issue as well right yeah, yeah yeah this is this is yeah and this is all over the show you know we've got you know old um you know the, and yeah, i had a window in, in my classroom that was broken by a cricket ball in term three and it took eight weeks to repair it yeah um so you know it's just you know if you can't if you can't fix your windows how can you fix your computers so um yeah so it's it's a, and it's a tough situation so uh, yeah, so we go into 2020, I was just like, we need to start preparing for this. We need to start thinking about what digital pedagogy looks like to us. We need to be checking on our on our students and, our, and their families. You know, do they have an internet connectivity? Do they have devices and access to devices? Because, you know, when we say device access, it's really easy to, well, first of all, even asking about device access is it has a point of stigma to it, right? You know, it's just, you know, it, nobody wants to be put on the spot and may it re- be really obvious that they don't actually have what's needed, um, which was another thing that gets, it turns up when with the BYD program, essentially the argument that the school was making was, you know, we'll have a loan process. And I'm just like, yeah, but every single kid that has to loan a computer, it's going to be really obvious that they have yeah. a loan computer. And, and this is real, I think this is something that happens, um, you know, across institutions and across um, kind of social service or public social public services is it moves from being like a provision to being a pathology yeah where, and Absolutely. you're like okay these are the these are the kids who need need a loan you know and yeah. and then that that spawns further equity issues absolutely yeah and you've got it you've got it in one you know it's it's looking at um I talk, talk about material access to devices, but that is just such a small part of the overall, like what is happening in digital inequity and in tech inequity. And so um, really considering what is the social ramifications of that, because, you know, if you, if you're, if a kid feels uncomfortable already using technology because, you know, they've had to use a loan computer or, you know, it's, it's, it's a shitty computer or something like that, you know, that they're already starting off on the back foot. They're already started starting off feel like feeling negatively about interacting with technology. And we just don't want that with, with, there are already so many barriers in place. So um, yeah. And so beginning of two thirds, so we're in 10, 10, 1, 2020, and I'm kind of kicking up a lot of noise and just saying, you know, we need to be revising, you know, how, how are we going to do this? This is going to be, this is going to happen. And at the same time, I was kind of looking at the government and kind of tapping my watch and thinking, okay, but when is this going to happen, guys? Like, you know, things are getting a little bit nerve wracking. Was it clear that early that it wasn't just going to be like a, a digital um, digital studies issue or a computer science issue, but that it was going to be like every part of the curriculum? 
it was to me. I know that's it's, <laughs> it's really easy to say that, um, but you know, I think I had access because I had access to what was happening overseas and seeing what was happening in America, what's happening in South Korea. Um, you know, well, through all of that, I was aware that this was this was a systemic that like this was going to be a huge thing that was going to happen to the entire education industry. And really, they were already at that point they were already talking about the fact that this was the most disruptive year in education since the Second World War. So, you know, we knew that this was coming. We knew this wave was coming. But also, um, even before COVID-19, even before we're talking about, you know, digital inequity in the COVID-19 pan pandemic, you know, digital technologies teachers are aware that the digital technologies curriculum is not written for digital technologies teachers. Yes, it is used by digital technologies and it's an important um, consideration in the way that we teach. But actually, the digital technologies curriculum is about how digital technologies is applied throughout the entire curriculum. And that's another uh, I think it's another point of frustration. It's something that I really appreciate the frustrations of math teachers and English teachers because it's that whole idea of, you know, the Aristotelian siloed subjects just saying, oh, well, they learn numeracy in maths classes or they learn literacy in English classes yeah. when it's actually, it's those are skills that they learn. And digital fluency isn't any different. Digital fluency, competence and confidence has to be learned in all subjects, not just in a digital technologies classroom. And that's one of the issues that comes up. So, you know, looking at this and thinking, well, actually, you know, I'm probably one of the better prepared ones because my kids have an expectation that we have, we always have the work on the Google Classroom. We always, you know, everything was run through digital, digital pedagogy tools, whereas whether it was the learning management system, whether, whether it was Code Avengers, you know. So I had all of those tools and I was using those tools. So I already knew that I had kind of the foundation for, for switching over if we needed to go into blended learning. Uh, or actually, sorry, completely flipped learning. And, and I already had a blended learning model. But um, yeah, I was sort of trying to talk to other teachers and talking to people who were sort of like my direct line managers and saying, hey, I've, you know, I prepared tools for gathering information about digital access at, at homes. And I'd already done that with my with my classes. I already, um, you know, quizzed my classes on I, like I, I'd gathered a lot of data on my classes and, and their digital access and also how they felt about digital access mm -hmm. and how, you know, what their perceptions are based on what they were seeing in other classes. I, so I had information on what was happening in their classes as well, not just in my computer science classes. Um, but really the school didn't want to borrow it. <laughs> and I know that partly it was just because they were so busy. And I know mm -hmm. that, you know, the beginning of the year is, is how like, it's, it's just for Ed, particularly for low decile schools, particularly for large low decile schools. And I've only ever taught in large low decile schools, the two schools that I've been at, um, you know, they, they have enough on their plates. And so they're really just fighting the fires that are immediately in front of them. And so then you've got this like beginner teacher who's saying, Hey guys, I've created the survey. <laughs> like, you know, of course they're not really going to take a, take that very seriously. Um, and it wasn't until the Friday before we went into lockdown that actually my line manager finally did get in touch with me. She was like, actually, could you run a training session next Wednesday during, um, we had like these Wednesday professional development sessions in the morning, you know, could you, could you run a training session on how to use, you know, how to use digital pedagogy? Tools this is the other thing as well, right, is you can't merely just start teaching like online yeah like and just a number of stories that i heard from other people i know who are teachers or um you know even from parents who have seen their um their kids be being taught online but yeah. people just don't know what they're doing and, and it's not like to cast shade or anything no it's just you've got you know up to 35 kids on a zoom call or on a microsoft teams call or whatever yeah. um and you're trying to manage that uh digital space yeah it, it's not easy. No. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's an under understatement. Um, yeah. No, it's, well, exactly. You've you've got it in one, and I think um, I and I and I can't remember where my first learning on this came from, but I, I think it was mostly from from my exposure to what was happening in the in the Google Innovator Network. Was you know I was already getting that feedback from teachers. I was already I was already invited into their classrooms in a way, and they were learning those things. They were mm-hmm. you know they they had done some of them had done blended learning, some of them had done flipped learning before for sure. Some of them had done even just like some form of remote learning, but you know never at the scale and never full time. And so you know I was fortunate that I was sort of on this this wave like this prescient wave of watching what was happening and learning from them before we even got there. We were still in person pedagogy fully. And I was learning from teachers who had been, you know, teaching remotely for weeks at that point. And so, um, and that's kind of where it came from. So, so the Friday before was really like my line manager contacted me. She was just like, you know, um, can you run a training session on just how to use some of the tools? Because, you know, for, for some of our teachers at that time, you know, they weren't even using Google Classroom properly, or they weren't even using online tools, because why would they if they had in-person tools and they had books and they had things like that, you know, it's this huge learning curve. And so I can understand where that came from. And particularly when in teaching in low decimal environments, you are really just fighting the fires in front of you. I, I say that quite a lot, I know. Um, and so I was like, yep, no, I'm happy to do that. And then over the weekend, I was invited by Omji Tech, who I I just started working with at the time. I just started working with them as an education consultant and collaborator on on curriculum alignment materials. And they invited me to create an online course for teachers to go through to to help them understand why blended learning, like why teaching remotely is so different from everything else. And and it's not just it's not just a case of your teaching online it's it's a completely different way of thinking about teaching about your role as a teacher about pedagogy because one of the biggest things that we saw last year the teachers that were getting burned out and the students that were really not getting the best value out of it was when you say last who, year 2021 or 2020 sorry 2020 okay <laughs> sorry. I, yeah actually, yes, hey, it was right. gonna happen once it's gonna happen at least once <laughs> yeah if that's a half right um yeah we, well in 2020 we saw like, sorry the first year of um they, you know, we saw teachers try to essentially just move their teaching online. And so they were teaching, you know, they were teaching in the same class slots. They were basically just doing a lecture style teaching like they would. Um, and, you know, it just was not compatible for them or for the students. And so um, so I spent, so I think it was like a 37 hour, um, it's like a 37 hour marathon of just, I, w- I was just taking everything that I'd learned from my colleagues in the Google Innovator Program and everything that I'd learned over the last couple of months of watching what was happening with the pandemic and everything that I'd learned over the last year of doing my own research and, and learning and just condensing that into this single online course for teachers to kind of run them through, you know, the quick and dirty, how do you teach online? How do you, how do you become a re- remote teacher at, like overnight? And so we published that course and it's still available. It's a free course. Um, I think a few hundred teachers across the country took the course and completed the course. And it was just, it was very simple. It didn't have, it wasn't very, like a lot of it was pulling in resources from other places as well. Um, But it was, it was just looking at this. It was kind of like, this is different. And, and here are some thought exercises that you can go through. And here's some basic tools that you can use to help you with that. And here's some things that can get you started so you can learn who you are as a, like as a, as a remote teacher. Um, because, you know, we all had to completely rip, like, you know, we had to go through this huge existential crisis of, you know, who are you as a teacher when you, mm-hmm. when you don't have a school, when you don't have students in front of you. And so that was the weekend before we went into lockdown. And then of course we never actually had that 
professional development session that I was supposed to be leading because we had 48 hours yeah. notice to pack up our classrooms and go home. Um, and that was kind of, yeah, sorry, I've, I know that it's very detailed run through. No, hey, you're not fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's been an interesting story. And so, yeah, and so that was, so 2020 was 2020 and we had, you know, we, with the lockdown, I mean, I've come from a disaster risk management background and I know that from the research that I was doing in Christchurch, I was at the University of Canterbury and I learned a lot from um, actually, you know, from firsthand accounts of what it was like to live through the Canterbury earthquakes and the fact that they were such a prolonged disaster, you know, it wasn't just the event of the disaster, it was all of the aftershocks, it was the EQC, it was everything else. Um, and I knew off the top of my head that a lot of the, the differentiating factors for people who experience post-traumatic stress uh, after disaster or during disaster and those who don't and those who adjust to disaster environments was the fact that is that long-term thinking. It's you can't be waiting for things to go back to normal anymore. You have to assume that this is your normal now. And so I kind of went into this pandemic thinking, right, this is it. We are going to be you know, we're, we're going to be locked in our homes forever. And I wasn't thinking about that too hard because I think we just like, you know, despair all around, just completely spiral. Mm. Um, but I was definitely, you know, I had to kind of, I decided in myself, I was just like, right, I'm just going to assume that this is us now and I'm going to just burrow in deep and figure out how to do this the best way that I can. Uh, and either way, this will help me be resilient as a person, as a teacher, as, you know, as, as we're going through this ridiculous situation. And so, um, and then, of course, our lockdown wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be. It was long. It was for sure. It was long and it was strict, but it wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be. And we came back into school and and then we had that kind of short, shorter lockdown at, um, in the year. And it was hard. Like 2020 was hard, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, it feels so far away now. But the yeah, it, it was it was a difficult it was a difficult year for teaching and for sure. Um, but it wasn't. Uh, I think 2021 actually really blew that water. Of course, for personal reasons, but like, you know, <laughs> emergency surgery and all of that. But the, um, but I think just you know looking at the long term ramifications of what happened to our learners yeah. because of twenty twenty. I think um, that's yeah. That kind of brings um, something up, which I, I don't think I mentioned in, in like the the notes for uh, for this podcast, but yeah. um, I think is pretty important to to talk about is you know you said coming from a disaster management background, um, one of the important things was to. I guess tape was on the ground and then, then plan forward from there. Um, yeah. Like in a sense that disasters roll on. Um, so even if the initial disaster is over, you've got this, you've got PTSD and other um, either resource or, or geographical or, or whatever issues arising out of that. But one of the ongoing narratives, I guess, um, out, out of government um, and not necessarily New Zealand government, but you know we've seen it uh, in the Western world at large. Is uh, we're returning to normal soon. We're returning to normal soon. <laughs> yeah. And and how much has that narrative um, kind of worked against trying to establish uh, some kind of new, um, maybe, maybe not fully like pedagogy, but approach to education in a age yeah. where, like, as far as we know, these pandemics. Um, will continue. Yeah. And, that, and you're absolutely right. That's um, one of the things I think I expressed frustration in over the last two years, actually, um, throughout the last two years. And actually, you know, another thing I would like to point out, which is something that my, one of my, I'm very fortunate that, you know, one of my colleagues and mentors in the Upper Mars to Teach First program is Dr. Michelle Johansson, who phenomenal human being. And she says it best as, you know, we were already in crisis. 
like education was already in crisis before the pandemic you know this there was no normal um that we wanted to be part of yeah. when in low decile schools and so I think in some ways you know it has been easier for us to to adapt to well let's cut loose with that you know <laughs> burn the system down <laughs> you know not that extreme <laughs> um <laughs> I try not to be so anarchistic when I go <laughs> on public forums but the um yeah it's you know, we were already in crisis. So many, so many of our young people were already in crisis. So many of our schools were already in crisis before COVID-19 came along and that compounded them. But exactly what you're saying is, you know, I think it almost worked against us that uh, the pandemic response, the government's pandemic response was so successful in eliminating COVID-19 in 2020, because it unfortunately did give us that window to go back into this, this almost normality um, and there were so many people who almost forgot what it was like to be remote teaching and forgot that that was actually something they adapted to. And, and so we came back and we kind of bounced back and, you know, and, and that, I think, um, that did actually stall progress because when, when this happened, I remember looking at, you know, the possibilities of it and actually being really encouraged because I was just, you know, you know things weren't working before. Uh, we have this opportunity to kind of throw throw everything out of the window and just start again and try and start again for our for our students with our students at the center of it. Um, and some of pro- some progress has been made. Like you know, the learner recognition credits I think were a, were a huge step forward, and that was um, and again how it was dealt with last year as well was was pretty well done by the Ministry of Education. Um, but yes, that that kind of yearning to go back to you know even just at the end like the end of last year all of this focus on having exams and how important it was to have exams and it was just like yeah we have this opportunity to kind of reimagine assessment and reimagine how you know how we teach and how we um qualify or quantify how what people like what what young people have learned and and the fact that it was just so rigidly held to that was like no we have to continue as normal it's like (laughs) things haven't been normal for over a year now guys like yeah. So um, absolutely, I think and that I think probably stalled progress. With you know, in, in New Zealand, like you said, you know, our our lockdown was like incredibly um, successful, especially compared to you know some of the responses, um, say in the UK or the US, and, and now in Australia. Um, but you know, I, I've, we've generally got eyes on overseas um, on the podcast as well, and you know, there's this huge. Uh, I don't know if outcry is the right word, but it was it was a very big uh, political driving point of both the Tories, um, the Conservative Party in the UK and, and the Republicans at the time um, in the US was children have to keep going to school. Yeah. Um, they absolutely have to. And um, you're like destroying their lives uh, if, yeah. if they aren't able to go to school. And as a result of that, you know, well, what what happened yeah. happened, right? So yeah. we, we had a, a range of variants. We had children getting sick and getting their teachers sick. Um, now with the Omicron variant, people are getting sick so fast that they don't have people to run the schools. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and actually seeing, and it's really devastating. Like I, I remember the first time I saw like a, a first-hand account of a teacher who had been forced to teach and had gotten COVID-19 and had died. And I just remember just being so devastated because um, and, and that was an interesting thing. I think for a while there, I felt that, you know, we were kind of the hidden frontline workers 
And that's not to take away from the amazing efforts of healthcare workers. Yeah. And, you know, we know no way, nowhere near that. But, you know, we were being asked to go into these classrooms with 30 kids at a time when everybody was being asked to stay home and, you know, non-essential work was was stopped. And yet we it was like it was okay to expose us. And I felt like that was a really that was a um, indicative of the wider societal movement to devaluing teachers and sort of like we're the cannon fodder and and it's so so important that and that kind of almost treating us almost like babysitters was just like it's so important that you're mm. you know that kids go to school but at the same time it's very funny because you know when you're saying about this this uh idea that so many conservative political parties or or people who were who were oriented in that direction were so focused on getting kids back to school and actually I think I come from a perspective that I feel like it's important for kids to go to school, but for different reasons, <laughs> for very different reasons. So, you know, I think that 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 idea of traditional education of them being in the classroom and kind of like all those rigid rules, instructions and things like that, like that's, you know, that's I think where those individuals who are for, like who are really advocating to return to schools, that's where they're coming from. And also that kind of like obsession with exams and assessments and all of that. Whereas with for me, I think, you know, the the thing that I mourned as a teacher for and particularly in low decile environments when, you know, there's, there's students that you're completely cut off from um, and that you would have a relationship with. You would have a learning relationship if you were with them face to face is the fact that school actually for me, I see school as an opportunity for young people to learn how to be human. Um, and that's actually the more important thing, like, you know, assessment and attainment, while those are really important things like learning, learning and learning competencies and all of that, uh, for sure, I, I do think that there's a place for those. But actually, just that social interaction and having those really positive um, human relationships, and particularly learning relationships and relationships with adults, like really positive nurturing relationships with teachers are, are one of the big things that is, is really important in the development of children. And so that's kind of where I come from is just like it's really important for for young people to be in some form of accessing those relationships. It just doesn't have to look like going back to school. Right. In fact, I was just reading um, a couple of weeks ago about these really interesting uh, like learning pods that are springing up in the United States because, you know, parents are understandably nervous about sending their kids back to school and, you know, schools are shutting down and there's all this different movement here and there. And so, um, you know, these, these little learning pods have opened up where like parents look after kids, like other kids. And it's sort of like these little yeah. um, collectives. And actually, if you look into, if you look back into indigenous education and the, the models of indigenous education, that's kind of traditionally how we have learned anyway. We've learned from those kind of mentoring relationships um, that go intergenerationally with with other families. And so, um, you know, it's, it's again, one of those situations where we, we're learning lessons that we should have learned before, but that were, were um, perhaps deleted or forgotten because of colonization, <laughs> which, you know, I, I laugh, but I laugh in this kind of very mirthless, sad <laughs> way that, you know, we have to learn this again. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's just like, you know, there's these, these camps of people who are just like, kids must learn, return to school. And I'm like, kids must attend to some in-person learning. It was <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> it was this weird thing, right? Because, you know, initially the, the argument was that COVID didn't affect kids. Um, <laughs> and yeah. then. Oh well, yeah, um, that was a thing. Yeah, that was a thing. And then <laughs> it turned out, you know, the reservoir for the virus and then long COVID is a thing now. Um, yeah. And then school shut for a bit. And then we got, uh, higher vaccination rates in uh, adults, and then kids mm. were sent back to school again. And you just, 
Like, uh-huh. No, 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 no. They can still catch it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we do have these competing um, needs, right? Like, yep. and with those educational socialization needs or, or whichever, yeah. um, those are competing. I, I don't think that's really, I don't think I'd ever argue against that. Those are competing with the need for like public health measures, right? Yeah. Um, well, kind of, but it's just, yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I no, just, go. I, I remember this really great searing commentary. I think it was, it must have been from a teacher must have been for a teacher. <laughs> but, you know, sorry, that sounded flippant. But the um, it was about the fact that, you know, uh, yes, socialisation is important for young people, but I'm pretty sure that they would prefer not to lose loved ones to yeah. COVID-19. Um, so public health does trump those measures. Um, I hate using the T word. The, um, <laughs> but they're definitely, you know, it's just, uh, sorry, it feels like the Slender Man. You know, you don't want to say it too often because it might turn up in the room. The, um, but it is very much, you know, public health comes first for sure. We will figure out a way. We will we will innovate around the need to socialize young people and find ways of not forcing them into these classrooms, into these situations that are a super spreader events all the time. And we can do that. But at the end of the day, I, you know, public health. Um, I remember the anxiety that I felt going back after I think it was the second lockdown in 2020 uh, when we still had community transmission and as a teacher and you know we were teaching with masks on and we were sanitizing before and after every class and and that ended up being okay but it didn't really make a dent in what we could have learned because everyone was so anxious and you know we were just in a situation that yeah, it was great to see our kids again but at the end of the day I would much rather us figure out okay let's look at this learning model. Let's look at what we're doing at home. How can we support families to, you know, because one of the reasons that education is so important at scale is because, you know, we're living in a cap, I hate coming back to capitalism, but we are living in a capitalist society where, you know, traditionally learning relationship, the first learning relationship that young people had was with their parents. But if their parents are so busy trying to put food on the table and pay for their rent or their mortgage, if they can afford one, you know, it's a situation where that they are losing out on, one of their number one learning relationships because of what is required of them in society. So I would rather us prioritize, okay, what are we doing to support them? What are we doing to support families? And then from there, you can have these beautiful little like learning pods turn up and you can have teachers that are, you know, moving outside of that classroom, that centralized location education model, which is still net, like it's necessary now. Like I'm talking about a very blue skies idealist idea, you know, concept. Um, and it's not to say that schools aren't very necessary and they are really important places. And I do think that um, there are there are real tragedies that happen in lockdowns that I I was unfortunately a first hand witness to through being a low decile teacher and being in lockdown and, and having to, you know, and being a support person for young people in those situations. Um, I still stand by lockdowns. I know that sounds really rich coming from, you know, because obviously I wasn't the one experiencing those things. But I would rather young people not live with the idea that they may have brought something home that killed their grandmother or their grandfather mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. their parents. This is the other thing, right? We don't often yeah. use them. You know, a lot of families aren't generational. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, you know, it's uh, and and as such have, and, and that's not even, you know, taking into account, you know, there, there are uh, older members of the family who may get it, but there may just be people who are immunocompromised or Absolutely. Um, have... <laughs> Other chronic illnesses or disabilities that that put them at risk as well. So there are any number of ways that um, 
yeah there are other um ways they could feel like a risk to their family yeah it's i mean it's it's such a we're you know it's on a knife edge isn't it there's there's pros and cons and all different ways you think about it but the way that i see it is just like i would yeah um i think there's a better way i think you know if school is risky if, if going back to in-person pedagogy is risky we have so many tools at our disposal that we're not using we, we have so much knowledge you know i talked about um indigenous models of knowing and learning and teaching and even the concept of aqua which is you know banded around so much in pedagogy and and so rarely actually used i feel in the way that it was possibly intended but the um yeah we we can do better than this we can do better than needing that but at the same time that needs to be a concerted effort on behalf of all social structures because you know if we're not um we can't possibly say oh well we can create learning pods if parents and families are still struggling to put food on the table and you know and if there's literacy you know you know you've got it has to be an intergenerational intersocietal intersectional approach to solving our learning and education issues and education inequity um and digital inequity because i know we've you know we haven't even talked about digital inequity but i feel like it's just the undercurrent of everything that's i think we kind of set it up with that as the undercurrent though so i think i think we're we're good there um so Schools are, are heading back pretty soon, um, yep. just starting with primary school, where we're pretty good on the COVID front, but the Ministry of Health has recently said that they'd be expecting an Omicron outbreak in February. Um, like that's just in terms of modelling, that's where it's it's likely to occur. They've, there's been a lot of talk, um, especially from people like Dr. Jen Russell on social media and you know in the media as well, um, being interviewed about what needs to be done to make classrooms safer in terms of uh, ventilation and air filters um, and those sorts of things, and that there are ways to do it. Hmm. What What is your take on that? Um, and whether or not we should even be heading in that direction, I guess. Because we know, you know, we know a lot of education infrastructure is, is not the greatest. Um, it, it can it even be set up in this way? Um, mm. And I guess we, we haven't heard yet, um, except for, you know, some of the opposition parties to be asking the government to rule out school closures, mm. um, whether the government will, will close schools um, if there's a lockdown again. We, we, that's not currently on the table, or, or rather yeah. it's always on the table, but they haven't um, kind of put put it down as part of the plan at this point yeah there's so many unknowns eh? and it's sort of like you never want to um whilst at the same time like I understand that people want to have certainty from the government and they want the government to stick to what they're saying um this pandemic is you know it's it's shifting it's changing shape all the time you know what might have been true for Delta is not true for Omicron and that's you know just not at all like not even close to being true I know it's it's just on a completely different scale and we're watching you know we're we're all, I know we're all watching in horror what is happening overseas and just feeling that sense of dread is just like, you know, something is going to happen. It may, it may not happen on the same scale. It may. Um, with school closures, you know, well, first of all, I am always going to defer to um, people who have far more experience than Dr. Jim Russell <laughs> and Susie Wiles and, you know, all of these amazing people, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, they, they have been voices of reason and understanding and really I you know I constantly 
am amazed at the energy with which they engage with with this and 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 try and, and get inf- like reliable information out into the public realm. Um, and it's very and it's very heartening as a teacher to see that you know science scientific communication done right. Um, as far as you know, the infrastructure is. I was really surprised because in the, in 2020, like you know, I used to think that um, you know teenagers. Come- heart social distance <laughs> they just don't you know <laughs> you just can't you know when you're cramming them in a you know situation and I remember coming back after the first lockdown and walking into the quad and these like year nines were playing COVID tag like, <laughs> like, <laughs> they, were, like they were just running after each other trying to give each other COVID and I was like oh great so this is how this is going to go so um, <laughs> but actually you know I did notice um over 2021 as well people like young people do they're you know they're always smarter than we give them credit for they're always more socially aware than we give them credit for and and they did and I think you know for the most part of course you're going to get some teenagers who are just going to be you know hey you're going to get some adults who are the same so like yeah exactly exactly you know we've got got probably more adults than teenagers that are going to like you know it's you know being being oppositional about it but the um yeah I think, you know, even when you're when you're trying to cram 30 young people into a classroom and we know that our classes, the ratios are skewed anyway because the teacher yeah, shortage. There's over, overcrowding, right? Like yes, yeah, there's overcrowding. Um, our buildings are not great. Um, you know, it's it feels like I trust the I trust the advice given by Dr. Jen Russell and 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 that. And so I think if she's saying that it's okay, I will I would tend to agree with that you know I, she she definitely knows her stuff um but to the same end I wonder how much is that is you know is it the lesser of evils is it a case of you know we have to do this and so we just have to make it as low risk as possible uh, I think also you know it's pretty amazing and I have to just you know you look at the work the principals are doing the ministry of education is doing they've essentially had to become almost like a public health um management for mm. for schools you know because they've they've had to organize how schools are cleaned how you know how outbreaks are dealt with uh, and that's all fell you know it's fell on people who are not public health officials who are not epidemiologists and so yeah one of the things that i would like to see uh is considering that with continued disruptions what no matter what we do um the disruption is actually the thing that is going to to continue setting our young people back and so continuing to change the shape of things that's yeah. that's actually where the problem comes in you know when we were in lockdown we were settling into it you know we were starting to get into a rhythm where young people were kind of establishing structure and they were just like okay this is what how, what works for me um and it was kind of like that jumping between lockdowns and then suddenly we're in level one and everything's normal and then we were having to go back into lockdown and then what happened with you know going between even the the alert levels and then the traffic light system yeah. which you know there's so much information right and like there's it's- so much and for us it's hard for adults it's hard we're having to learn how to navigate a pandemic you know what is it like for a teenager who's also trying to learn who they are and and learn how you know they don't even have a full fully developed frontal lobe yet <laughs> and, we, and we theoretically do and we're finding it hard to make decisions about these things so um and so really it's just a case of i think preparing for the eventuality of not necessarily school closures but accepting that pedagogy is going to look different even if from here on in say you know i'm going to talk in the blue skies at the moment is just say we have a high enough booster boosted population a high enough vaccination you know we have amazing vaccination rates and omicron doesn't really make a dent in the community as it has done overseas Uh, we don't have any school closures we continue on with the school year the 
the disruption caused by COVID-19 has happened already. Even if it doesn't continue in the same vein, we already have, um, we have two, you know, we've got two generations now or like school generations. So, you know, two years of disruption for young people, whether they're going into, you know, no matter what sector of education they're at, what level of education they're at. And so pedagogy has to change anyway. We have to adapt anyway to the idea that, you know, we have young people who have been, you know, young people on Tamaki Makoto who have been shut indoors for the last three, four months of the year who are having to learn how to socialise again. You know, we've got young people who will have huge amount of anxiety around you know, because they're picking that up from their parents as well, because we've been through a huge amount of anxiety. Mm-hmm. We've got falling literacy rates. We already had falling PISA scores. And I don't think that that is going to have an upturn anytime soon because, you know, we're just fighting fires in the ground. We're not necessarily looking at how we can get back to to developing or delivering this world-class education system. So I think for educators, just really accepting um and, and I'm also not trying to tell people what to do <laughs> because you know, uh, I may, you know, I'm also on this journey and learning, but I feel like for me, I'm looking at ahead is just like, even if, even if somebody just waved a magic wand and deleted the pandemic from here in, if, if everything just went back to normal overnight, it's never going to back, go back to normal because we have yeah. this, this legacy and I feel like it's up to us to make that legacy a, po- a positive one as as much as we can look at the disruption and create something look look at the le- like what we've learned over the last two years and say you know actually the education system wasn't serving our young people before not all of them um it's we've had a really hellish couple of years and you know thankfully touch wood a lot of us have survived it but um what can we do next what can we what can we take from the ashes of this situation um, to build something better, build back better, because um, and which is something that was said in Christ. Yeah, we'll come, well, we'll come back to that again and again, right? Yeah. Is this idea of um, building back better? It was like in the initial, um, some of Labor's initial comms around yep. the pandemic. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and I really feel like for education, in a very similar way with the health sector, the pandemic has exposed that inequity, it's exposed that lack of resource and that overwork that was already inherent in those systems. Um, But we quite, haven't quite seen the impacts of that on the ground in the same way as we might have with the health system at this point. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. And it's, when we're going to see, we are gonna continue to see those um, particular, like and with education, it's an interesting one because, you know, as one of the harder things as a teacher is sometimes you don't see the impact of your work until 10 years later. Yeah, that's or, what you I know, mean. you get, it's wild, isn't it? And, but then with COVID, we're also going to see, we're going to see this roll on for another five years, for another 10 years, probably. Um, and it's accepting that that's going to happen and accepting that actually, uh, yeah, exactly what you said. It's exposed the inequities that were already there. We can't afford to get wrapped up in, oh, this was all the pandemic because this was not <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> like it was just, um, yeah. And and so I'm kind of looking forward to, in some way, um, you know, trying to trying to be optimistic about it. Is looking forward to what you know the amazing innovations that have come off this disaster. You know, there's a there's a really great book um, by Rebecca Solnit. It's one of my favorite authors um, called About a Paradise Built in Hell, and it talks about the post disaster utopia that springs up when you know when um, in disaster environments 
immediately after you see this like almost all social barriers are broken down and people are at their best version of themselves so you know sometimes you know some people really struggle but for the most part we all just kind of band together and we want to help and um and with you know in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic and it's not even the aftermath because it's still ongoing um but in education I think uh, if we can if we can take all of the amazing innovations that came off things that teachers just had to do and we can actually work together to support those teachers because also they are going through um you know they are going to be going through post-traumatic stress anyway um they're going to be you know they're already exhausted and then they're going to have to go in for another year of it and we've got omicron looming and stuff and um and so thinking about you know how can we support them and particularly, how can we support the teachers to stay in education after the COVID-19 pandemic? Because whilst there was low attrition during the COVID-19 pandemic, because everything was up in the air and teachers were just like, well, this is a job that pays a salary and I can stay in it, even though it's even, even though it's tough. Um, you know, they will have invaluable lessons learned, yeah. but they're also really burned out. And so it's just, you know, how can we support them to continue teaching and continue thriving um, and at the same time, capturing everything they've learned so that we can make our education systems better and more equitable. Yeah, I mean, like, you, I already know of people in the UK and the US, for example, who just left, who just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to be forced to go and catch COVID. You know, I'm immunocompromised. Yeah. Um, so you're already seeing people uh, leave teaching and we're not even like yeah. at full burnout mode yet um, in a lot of respects. So... I guess we'll just come to the the last bit. Um, hmm. I just wanted to cover, and, and that's what what do you think uh, teachers in the government can be doing to to make things easier? <laughs> <laughs> and I know that wording is controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as soon as that came through, I was just like, "Wow, I'm gonna get no." I it was just it was your your phrasing to, to prepare. Yeah, um, no, totally. And I and and I and I did read it later. I think I have a knee-jerk reaction to this, you know, what can teachers do? Because um I feel like, you know, so often it falls back on teachers to kind of pick there was something that I picked up that it was happening uh, where we, in my like with my cohort when when I took this job, so I, I took the job as education program leader at Rocket Lab. It is my dream job and you know, took um it was a really tough decision to leave the classroom, but I was not going to say no to this job. This is this is my dream job. But um, I remember talking with cohort members from Akumata to be Teach First. And, you know, they were they were saying, you know, oh, you've got a real job. You've got a real job. And teachers say quite a lot when they leave the industry. They say, I, I've gone and gotten a real job. It's dark, yeah. I'm really not into it. Um, yeah. Even well, within teaching, like those, you know, like if you can't attitude. do teach kind of stuff is like, yes, it's, it's so, so endemic. So, it's an, it's internalized. It's so yeah. internalized this de- devaluing of teachers, uh, and so you know one of the first knee jerk responses to what's happening whenever something is happening, even outside of the pandemic, is you know what can teachers do? And and yes, like absolutely, there's accountability. And and when I was inside that, I was like, okay, what can we do? What can we do? But that has to come from the teachers themselves. This whole idea that society can just front load all of these come on teachers, get it done. Yeah. Like they, yeah. it almost like they, they, they uh, sit at this so much responsibility and none of the glory kind of thing. Yeah. But you know, it's not about glory. But it's um, 
yeah, I feel like a lot of things are put down to the responsibility of teachers when it's wider societal issues, it's wider inequities, it's, you know, we can only do so much as individuals and so, or as as teachers in the profession. And so, yeah, so, so that's when, when you're, I was like, what can teachers do? I was like, well, what can you do? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I want to I be clear. So I was, I was bundling yeah. it with the government in that case, because yeah. I, I think you're absolutely correct. And, you know, when I was teaching as well, uh, one of the things you'd often see is, teachers having to you know just dip into their own pocket to like yeah you know, just even decorate their classrooms or like for yeah. for teaching resources and this is a this is a consistent problem for decades I mean yeah. it continues till today so there's a lot that um, teachers are a lot is asked of teachers beyond what their their role is right or beyond what their the career um, is meant to encompass but yeah alongside government and and what government can do in terms of res- uh, resourcing, um, and making it easier for both teachers and for um, children and their families. Um, what, what's on yeah. the table, do you think? Oh, so much. <laughs> Living wage. <laughs> <laughs> Living wage, you know, let's increase, uh, increase, you know, like UBI, let's, you know, let's just shoot for the moon. Um, yeah, she says, sitting inside Rocket Lab. The, um, <laughs> I think um, the big thing for me is, and it's interesting that the reports on the teacher shortage because they, you know the Ministry of Education in some ways is saying we've we've got a set like a surplus supply of teachers and then we've got principals on the other hand saying we've still got a shortage of teachers and I'm like which I don't one know is it? yeah which one is it uh, um, but the uh, and also I don't decry the work that the Ministry of Education does because it's just like you know they're working with what they've got and they've, you know there are some phenomenal things and and I've met and worked with some amazing people at Ministry of Education who you know they're working within the constructs of of public service um, but the I think the big thing is looking at um, is actually taking it seriously what's happening with teacher burnout and um, taking it seriously with teacher retention and how can we support teachers? Because on the one hand, I see a lot of, um, you know, when you start teaching, there's this like, oh, we've got all of these support structures in place. Like, this is how we're going to support you. Uh, But then on the other hand, they're like, yeah, but you also have to do this, this and this and this. And um, that just can't continue. The, the front-loading can't continue. They have to recognise that um, teachers were already tired and then this came along. And so, yeah, I was, I, was tra- I was racking my brains with this because there are some really cool things happening. I, I read recently about uh, a bonding scheme that they're looking to bring in for teachers in low decile schools, so decile two and three schools. And, and I think that that's a really good idea. So it's just, you know, instead of charging uh, so instead of teachers having to pay to get their qualification and then, you know, get into a school and then realize it's not for them, it's just sort of like you have to go through that bonding process. And likewise with Teach First, you know, you have to teach for two years and at least that's two years and it, you can kind of create that rotational teacher um, teacher workforce that, you know, so people are always going to be leaving and um, it's better that they leave when they need to leave because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, you've got, you've got teachers in front of the classroom that don't want to be there and we know that there's a whole load of problems that come off that. But the, um, yeah, I think, uh, so that's a really, really cool initiative. Um, honestly, I feel, I, I keep coming back to this in myself and I just feel like if our families are, if our young people's families are housed and they are safe and they are fed and they are healthy, then we have so much more to work with in education. You know, that's that's kind of it. And so that doesn't even happen within education. It, so you know, it's baseline public service stuff. Yeah. And, which it sounds like, you know, when we had the um, last year or was it 2020? 
Good God. I, I'm confused now as well. I think it was last year, 2021, we yeah. did the People's Epidemic Response Committee, right? Um, yeah. We had people from uh, AAAP um, and Child Poverty Action Group saying exactly the same things. Yeah. Um, if you want to, the pandemic response to be successful, make yeah. sure people have enough money to eat. Yeah, you that's know? it. That's it. And so, so yeah, so the basic, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I've, I've seen so many of the adapted Maslow's hierarchy of needs with Wi-Fi underneath like <laughs> the base of the pyramid is Wi-Fi, which kind of in, in some ways can, can sometimes feel true. But the, um, yeah, and I mean, if, if we're going to talk about digital equity, you know, there's, a, there's one of the things that I saw spring up was um, Etero Lafayette, who I was fortunate enough to know through OMG Tech and through the Pan Focus and Trust, and she's a phenomenal human being, and she started... Um, and digital tour, which is was you know initiative to try and get devices into the hands of young people and I remember just watching this and thinking this is amazing um but it's kind of like when you look on social media and you see a give a little page for um yeah. for a child's surgery yeah. you're just like this is something that should have been provided <laughs> as individualized charity right yeah and it's and and it's and it is, I don't ever like I I don't want to sound like I'm decrying the work they did because they did amazing work and actually it coming from the community was more important as well because it was coming from people that that they trust you know like that that young people trust and they they're like you know so actually sometimes it does need to come from that community and like that but it it does need to have that kind of structural support around it um, so you know if we're talking about yes material access to devices but also just looking at um, one of the things that I posed, and I think I would be really interested to see this, and this is kind of like one of my off the wall, but I hope that this becomes a thing, is um, not having digital technologies classes. I think we need to actually remove digital technologies classes and the digital technologies teachers that exist in schools become in instructional designers. Yeah. And they work with teachers across the curriculum to actually make sure that digital fluency, competence and confidence is something that is taught in every single class. Instead of being taught in a separate class, like, of course, you've got computer science, you've got kids who want to go in that direction. You do need those specialist subject classes. But actually, when it comes to when it comes to digital technologies at year nine and year 10 and the digital technologies curriculum progress outcomes, I feel like it could be far better implemented if you take a, a subject that students naturally love that they, you know, and with teachers that they are thriving with. It doesn't matter which subject it's coming from. And you work alongside them as instructional designers is how can we build in learning digital fluency, confidence and competence through that. So that's something that it was like, you know, and I know that's really off the wall because we already have a shortage of digital technologies teachers, you know, how we get instructional designers. But the um, but I think that could be that could be a game changer. It's one of those yeah. things as well, which is like, again, yeah. it's, it's digital communication is endemic now. It is. And this is why, you know, a range of uh, left wing parties have um, across the world have suggested free broadband for everyone, right? Because it's it's at the point where you need it to interact as a full member of society. Absolutely. And um, in, in many senses of the word. And, you know, we, we've never had a problem in, in curriculum studies or, or whatever um, with having kind of baseline things that work across the top um, of all your standard subjects like maths and, and literacy. Um, mm. So they're like critical thinking um, and other what do you call them key curriculum key competencies, key competencies. Well, like, well there's key competencies which are slightly different in the New Zealand curriculum but yeah they, so yeah. we're looking at the, the skills-based learning and competency-based learning and and you know and I think people are like we and NCEA has been really good for um like the the current current previous model of NCA because they obviously are moving into a different model for literacy and you mm. see now but um you know helping helping teachers understand 
or helping everyone understand that literacy happens outside of an English classroom. Yeah. Not and English and so much of it happens just on the internet now. That, well, this is it. And, yeah. and, you know, if you look at the skills that young people are already using in digital environments, just are not, they don't look like what we used to. Yeah. Or and, what and what the cookie on is used to. Either. Yeah, well, that's it. And so, you know, if we can, if we can create more of that kind of like symbiotic relationship between young people, they, they do already have digital fluency and competence and competence and confidence. They just don't necessarily, um, they may not even know the language around how they're using it or, yeah. or engaging critically with it, but they do have a huge amount of skills. Uh, and dang, like you just need, you just need to look into any of the TikToks. <laughs> just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And when I say the TikToks, I mean like, you know, it's this like mental health TikTok and ADHD TikTok and there's um, social equity TikTok, you know, any like indigenous TikTok. And so if we leverage the power of what's happening in these digital environments already and kind of let let the communities that we're, you know, we we have deficit thinking. We are often on looking at certain areas of society and saying that they're affected by digital equity or di digital inequity. Um, and it's like, actually, if you look deeper, there's a huge groundswell of digital knowledge and digital interaction that's happening in spaces that we're looking at. We like, like saying, oh, they don't have a laptop and they don't know how to code. So they must be you know, they must be in an inequitable digital environment. They must be digitally deprived when actually, you know, if that kid is like, they're making the most amazing like videos, on, you know, they, they're creating these transitions on TikTok and they're communicating. Isn't that what we're, we're looking for? We're looking yeah. for connection and community and learning and development. It just looks slightly different. And so I think um, it's not to say that digital fluency, confidence and competence is not important in, in some traditional ways as well, but it's just... Um, it's that building it yeah. up alongside the education system, right? So that when we are having this disruption, when we're having to go and close schools and then do some digital stuff, that transition is a bit more seamless than it currently is. It yeah. causes a little less disruption. Um, yeah. and, and trying to teach these subjects that are already connected to the digital world yeah. um, rather than trying to teach a in-person classroom uh, using a technology that it's not designed for. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've nailed it. Like, I mean, the easiest, the easiest, um, easiest digital humanities class that I ever taught was just showing my kids the great hack. <laughs> I was just like, I just put it on. And the questions and the discussions that came off that were like far more insightful from, you know, I had far more engagement, like active engagement from, from my young people than much of the kind of very dry curriculum stuff that had happened earlier. I was like, dang, I should have done this at the beginning of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, exactly. you, you totally nailed it. It's just, um, yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> hey, any, um, any last, last points you wanted to make or um, sign-offs? I think a big thing for me is just uh, really, like when I'm engaging in conversations around this, um, I'm really aware of, you know, obviously I've got a huge amount of privilege and, and I've been fortunate to be able to speak with, like I've learned from some truly incredible people and learned from the communities that I have been teaching in. That's a huge privilege in and of itself. Um, and to honor that, I just want to kind of say that I'm, I know in no way position myself as an expert um, that I'm as far from that as possible. Um, but I think, yeah, I, um, I have hopes for, for where education can go. I think there are some amazing people who are working in these spaces who are um, who who are really leading. Uh, uh, MJ often says, you know, leading the walker. Um, 
uh, like in in the right direction. And I think that is happening. And so it's just really um, for people who are not teachers or who are not working in the education system, I really would just love to see more asking them. Uh, I see a lot of people who have reckons about education. As education, I say this a lot, but education is a very interesting industry because everybody's gone to school at some, like everybody has <laughs> had some form of education. And unfortunately, that kind of gives a lot of people the impression that they're an expert and they are an expert of their own experiences. I, I would never take that away from them. But uh, having gone to school and experienced school and having a chip in your sh- shoulder about school, which is understandable because school is school, but um is very, very different from being in that environment and teaching in that environment and, and existing in that environment, being traumatized by that environment and being a pedagogical expert or, you know, and, and not to say that every teacher is a pedagogical ex- expert, but I would really love to see when people want to have reckons about what's happening in education, um, preface that with understanding that you have your own experiences and those are very valid and you absolutely have a right to speak to them. But I would rather see the platform handed over for to our teachers and particularly our teachers in low decile environments uh, and listening and, and students and students and families in low decile environments and listening to what they need rather than, you know, there's a lot of noise out there from people who um, who have all the best intentions and who want to change things for the better. But I would I'd love to see more coming yeah, fantastic. from. I think that that speaks directly to that um, point we we're talking about earlier as well, where, you know, uh, ministers of education or um and not necessarily new zealand were saying oh we have to do this for them for them like you do do you yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Um, why not with them (laughs) yeah exactly exactly hey if um people want to find you uh where can they do that uh so yeah i'm on i'm on twitter i i'm trying to balance up the the education tweets and the uh anarchistic burn the system down tweets with the fact that you know my role is is education program leader at rocket lab and i'm very fortunate to have that so yeah so i'm i'm at rocket teach uh on twitter and i love engaging about education and about space and about stem and i definitely post like um bad jokes and memes as well and i and i love that love a good pun um and also yeah and and if they um i would encourage uh while i wasn't engaging in this uh in this discussion in my capacity as education program lead in Rocket Lab, you know, I'm not I'm not speaking for the company in, in this regard. I'm speaking as myself and in and, and my interest in digital equity. Um, but we are doing some really exciting exciting things in Rocket Lab. And if you are interested in um, you know, we like we're looking at, you know, the future of STEM and space and technology education in New Zealand and and particular like not just New Zealand, because you know, Rocket Lab is global, we're looking at the United States and, and further abroad as well. Um, but you know, we are based in Aotearoa as well and I think, um, and if you want to see some really cool stuff happen, hopefully in education and, and find out more about what we do, then please, by all means, go to Rocket Lab's website. Um, if you go to uh, careers, so you go to Rocket Lab, you can go to rocketlab.co.nz or rocketlabusa.com forward slash education or go to um, careers and it's one of the options there. Uh, there's information about how you can be part of what we're, we're doing. Um, and it, it, it comes back to, you know, how can we make learning accessible and exciting and adapt to the changes that are needed and so yeah I think um I think that's probably the best place to direct people so either you can interact directly with me and we can talk uh we can talk about you know how can we build the system back better um or you can look at what we're doing at Rocket Lab which is what I'm trying to actually do is walk the talk (laughs) so yeah 
Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for uh, coming in and chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I really appreciate it. All right. That's been another week of one of 200 podcast. If you've enjoyed this, share it around. Uh, let people know um, there's some good independent media out there uh, talking about a range of, of different topics in the political and media space. And we'll catch you next time. See you later. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no.